again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to this podcast called Scope of Practice. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And our podcast today is made possible through the financial support of Crowell Counseling and Consulting in Westbrook, Connecticut on the Boston Post Road. The practice owner, Joanna Crowell, is a licensed professional professional counselor and an EMDR certified trauma therapist. She is also internationally certified as both an advanced alcohol and drug counselor and clinical supervisor. She is an integrative psychotherapist who incorporates a holistic approach to health, wellness, and recovery. She works hard to meet clients where they are at, supports client-led goals and habit changes that support an ongoing process of transformation. She has been a passionate member of the mental health and addiction recovery field for over 10 years, approaching recovery as a lifestyle rather than a short-term solution. For information, you can go to crowellcounseling.org or you can reach the practice at 860-577-2252. And on behalf of the board of directors and staff, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. As we sit in the middle of Black History Month, an important way to honor Black Americans is by telling the truth of oppression and struggle, no matter how uncomfortable for some. Let's go back to 1914 when New York Congressman Francis B. Harrison sponsored the seminal American drug law that bears his name. The Harrison Narcotic Act on its surface was written to control the use and sale of certain substances, specifically opiate derivatives and cocaine, which were available over the counter and were unregulated. Historians and criminologists, however, have been very clear on the true purpose of the legislation, to protect the sanctity of white women from Asian and black men, specifically regarding opium and cocaine. Since that point, as the ACLU points out, even the term drug law has been euphemistic for social control of non-whites. Moving ahead, on June 17, 1971, President Richard Nixon stated, that the abuse of drugs was public enemy number one and declared a war on drugs. What he really declared was a war on black Americans and the anti-war movement, not only evidenced by the targeting of black and brown people by law enforcement at rates 650% higher than whites. But in the words of Nixon advisor, John Ehrlichman, who prior to his death stated, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, we could raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. Every president since that time has continued with the failed war on drugs in some fashion, despite calls for changes in federal drug policy from advocates. The failure of the drug war is so commonly known that The Onion, a parody of news websites, actually had an article with the headline, Drugs Win Drug War. Our guest today is John Watts, a criminal justice practitioner and educator with over 18 years of experience working in the criminal justice system. Currently, he so serves as an adult probation officer with the Connecticut Judicial Branch and an adjunct professor at Gateway Community College. John is a certified trauma trainer with the SAMHSA's Gaines Center and holds certification as a criminal justice addiction professional and forensic cognitive behavioral therapy. John has a bachelor's degree in liberal arts from Charter Oak State College, a master's degree in management and organizational leadership from Alberta's Magnus College, and is currently pushed, pursuing his doctorate degree in criminal justice from St. Leo University. 
John, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Uh, thank you, Jeff. And, and, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to really, uh, I love history. And I really like how you went back to the uh, Harrison Act of 1914. So I totally agree. Um, as I was doing some research and, and preparation for this uh, podcast, you know, these drug laws, you know, started intentionally, you know, again, with crack, you know, trying to regulate, you know, cocaine. But one of the things that at the time they said that, um, you know, black men and Chinese men were, you know, getting high on cocaine and raping white women. So I, I like how you kind of, you know, framed it and put it in a historical context and then just kind of brought it up to the uh, current day and just, uh, you know, drug laws and, and the political structure, how the war on crime has um, significantly impacted uh, communities of color. So I really appreciate uh, your introduction. So I'm welcome to and uh, in, in ready to get into the discussion today. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. Hey, as we begin, let's talk about some of the particulars of systemic oppression of black and brown Americans, how we as a nation handled the eruption of crack cocaine just a few decades ago versus how we view the ongoing opioid epidemic. Uh, on a side note, in 1996, the San Jose Mercury News newspaper published a three-part series on the connection between the CIA and the influx of crack in the U.S. in the 90s. So that's kind of an interesting piece. So let's talk about some of the, the oppression that was uh, related to those two different things and how we had. Yeah, so so um, and, and great question, Jeff. So I, I want to kind of again, we want to put it back into historical context. So um, I want to, you know, talk about two uh, crime bills. You know, the first one is the 1986 Federal Dr uh, Drug Abuse Act. OK, this is when crack was really prevalent in the uh, inner cities. And then the second one is the crime bill, which is most notable is the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. So it was during, you know, Clinton administration. So when you look at crack, uh, you know, we all know uh, crack really destroyed families, uh, communities, uh, infrastructures, education. It, it really did uh, a job in the African-American community without the proper intervention, you know, so crack you know, kind of hit the streets, but we didn't know not enough about crack. And it was a shorter, uh, a lesser derivative of cocaine. So crack was a poor man's drug, you know. So, um, you know, so, you know, all it takes is like a little bit of uh, cocaine, powder cocaine to produce crack. So um, and, and the other thing, you know, I want to underscore, you know, too, when we look at the current opioid, you know, epidemic, you know, uh, the opioid epidemic, you know, when I look at it, when I did the research, uh, and it's funny because I just did a paper last week about it. We were talking about how it kind of ballooned out of control. And, you know, what happened is United States and Canada, uh, you have a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are backing and pushing, you know, the use of opioids to manage pain, chronic pain. The problem is, you know, once that individual gets off the pain, you know, that their body is still lusting for that, you know, that opioids, you know. So what happened is now people move to heroin and, and, and more deadly fentanyl, you know? So, um, but the, but the, if I were to compare both eras, you know, at least now we can say that we have methanol maintenance, we have more, you know, awareness, we have uh, uh, Vivitrol shots. So we have other mechanisms that we didn't have in the eighties with crack. And unfortunately, you know, crack, uh, you know, because we didn't have all of these best practices approach, you know, crack became criminalized, you know, and it also produced uh, the prison uh, industrial complex, you know, mm -hmm. so you got two different eras. Um, I, 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 you know, but I think there's a lot to be learned from the crack epidemic, but we also have to look at draconian drug laws, you know, so, um, so I think that, you know, where we at with opioids, I think we're moving in the right direction. 
um, with intervention. And, and I think educating people is very important. Nevertheless, you know, African-American communities are still being plagued by any drugs, you know, rather be opioids, crack, cocaine. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully in this discussion, we're going to talk more about some of those, you know, risk factors, what lead, you know, African-Americans use, you know, more drug use. You know, we got a current pandemic, you know, which, um, you know, a lot of people in a lot of circles um, in a criminal justice circle, they're not talking about the pandemic and you know, how drug use has increased and, and more mental health systems and everything is, you know, exacerbated, you know, so, uh, but two different eras. Um, but I think the difference with the opioid, you know, we have more science, we have data, and we have interventions available that we didn't have during the crack uh, pandemic. I also think that, and I, I say this when I uh, talk about MAT best practices around the country, is I let people know, people have been dying from opioids since the 1930s. Yes. Um, um, Black, brown, and uh, other inner city Americans have been dying from heroin since then. It only became a crisis yes. when it hit the suburbs and uh, was attacking white families. That some yes. became a crisis that we'll deal with, and we didn't over-criminalize it like we did with crack. So I think, again, the racial pieces come into play. And as, yes. you, as we had a, just a brief conversation before we started recording about how now in national harm reduction efforts, they want to create safe smoking kits for people. And yes. there's an uproar on whether they're going to put crack pipes in there or not. Well, they're not. But the uproar, to me, is racially based, unknowingly Absolutely. racially based for most people. Absolutely. Uh, because they're Absolutely. associating crack use again uh, yeah. with black and brown Americans. Yeah. And as we said, um, you know, Jeff, a lot of these policies, they're not really vetted out. You know, you don't go. They never go to the stakeholders. They never, you know, uh, look at the unintended consequences of these policies. And I think ultimately that may be a knee jerk policy that, you know, they're trying to, you know, trying to put into an ordinance in, within the city to mitigate the drug use. But there's always unintended consequences and without evaluation. You know, we can't put policy into practice without properly evaluating it, you know, as well. I was recently exposed to some information uh, that, that kind of talked about how systemic oppression led to the rise of gang activity in parts of Los Angeles, most notably the Crips and the Bloods in the Watts neighborhood. Um, but one could also see how these factors contribute to substance use disorders, trauma, and an overall distrust of the system, which is considered to be, and for all intents and purposes, is a white system. Absolutely. Uh, can we talk about some of those contributing factors that are directly what the opposite is of, of the public narrative? So uh, another good question. So gangs, you know, um, and, and one of the things that you mentioned in the uh, question is about trauma. And I, I think uh, right now I'm a, I'm a trauma trainer with the uh, SAMHSA Gang Center. So I train criminal justice, you know, professionals about the uh, prevalence of trauma and how to, you know, interact with individuals in the criminal justice system. But, um, you know, trauma, you know, has has an intergenerational, you know, uh, impact on people in, in communities, you know. And if we don't have that conversation, if we don't talk about it, it it, it actually invertly affect other areas, increase substance abuse, you know, because people are coping, you know. Um, when you look at the gain activity in Los Angeles, you know, sometimes, again, I, I like to bring it back to the pandemic. You know, people, this pandemic has, you know, disproportionately impacted communities of color, now you have young black men, you know, young Latino men looking for identity, looking for belonging, you know, stability, and they find that stability in gangs, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes your peer groups, you know, so when we talk about gangs, 
you know, the peer influence right now is, is, is such a gravitational force on these young men absence you know, uh, you know, pro-social mentors and positive male, you know, male, male role models, you know, so, and then you have an anti-government, you know, so with the pandemic and, um, you know, what's been going on the last couple, you know, the last couple of years, you have a lot of young men that are anti-government. They don't believe in government. So what happened is you erode those, those traditional norms and values. And now they just more of a, you know, they're, they're bucking against the system, you know, so gain, gain, gain uh, activity is almost like a way of bucking against, you know, pushing back on the system, you know? And, um, you know, but these urban neighborhoods, you know, they're struggling, you know? And it's not to say that, you know, I'm not endorsing any of this crime that's going on, but there's always a symptomatic, it's symptomatic of a bigger issue, systemic issue, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that certainly there are, pro- there are difficulties in, in, the system, in, in the system, especially around urban centers. But we have to look back at the social factors that created those problems. Yes. And that goes back to post-World War II with the GI Bill and the development of, of the suburbs yes. and white flight from the cities. And Absolutely. people weren't spending their money in the cities. Yes. And the and the government just kind of let them go. When you put Absolutely. people in situations where they can't trust from the outside, um, and it's you do it's all about survival because their neighborhoods are forgotten by the people that are supposed to take care of them. Um mm-hmm. Ultimately, in many cases, the the sell, sale of drugs and involvement in gangs isn't even a choice for many people. It's survival yes. in those in those communities. Absolutely. You know, interestingly, when we talk about drug use in general, both white and black Americans are similarly represented in drug use. Um, actually, sixteen uh, percent of the total population of black Americans use drugs, while about 18% uh, of white Americans. Yet, as I mentioned in the intro, Black Americans are disproportionately more likely to have an interaction with the criminal justice system. 650% simply by being in a vehicle or or just being out in the community. Um, based on your experience and your research, what are, the, what are some of the systemic factors that lead to these disturbing numbers? Um, great question. So. Um, as I indicated earlier, um, I teach at a Gateway Community College, so I teach mm-hmm. criminal justice. And what I do is, uh, in all my classes, I try to put everything within a historical context, you know, for students to really understand how do we get here. You know, we didn't just roll over and have this issue. You know, especially with the uh, disproportionate contact of minorities in the criminal justice system. So, just to kind of take you back, you know, when we look at, you know, in Southern states, let's go back to history. You know, let's go back to slavery. You know. Um, even at the 13th Amendment where, you know, you're free unless criminal, you know, so now it becomes free black men were becoming criminalized, you know, so as we move through history, we had different laws. And again, I go back to laws because they always have an unintended consequence on, you know, certain groups. So then as we move through history, you know, you have Jim Crow, you have um, you have different um, segregation. So what happened in the South, including my family, you know, there was a lot of segregation in the South. So my my mother, my father, they're both sides of the family move north. You know, naturally, you just move north. You know, you try to get out of the south, you know. But unfortunately, you know, when when families from the south, they call it. Um, uh, there's a big migration movement, I want to say, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. So a lot of southern blacks moved into northern cities. However, they were concentrated. OK, so when they move into these concentrated cities because they didn't have a luxury of moving to the suburbs. So you know, New, uh, New York, you got Philadelphia, you got Boston, you got big cities. 
But unfortunately, when you move into these concentrated cities, um, you know, they're over police, you know, by the police department, you know, so they they're, they're uh, you know, you have more access to police officers, more access to courts and, and things of that nature. So ultimately, that kind of, you know, equates to the higher disproportionate contact, uh, you know, with the criminal justice system. It's just sometimes it's just proximity. It just be you can just walk out on your porch and just have contact where if you live in a suburb, you may not see a police officer for days, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, but I think a lot of this goes back to, you know, systemic racism when you look at um, the plight of uh, African-American families moving from the South to the North, uh, but subsequent, you know, subsequently, you know, put them in cities where, you know, uh, they had higher contact with police officers, which results in higher contact and, and involvement in the criminal justice system. So. And I, I think it's important to, to note that what we see in each generation is really just being is built on what has happened in the prior generations. Yes. These yes. things just don't appear out of, of nowhere and start happening. There's always a base. So it goes back and, and yeah. recognizing the history and, and talking about the history as uncomfortable it is, as it is for this country really has to happen for yes. any uh, change to really take place. Absolutely. Um, I agree. In 2015, uh, the barriers that Black Americans faced, uh, or all racial and ethnic minority groups that they were experiencing, came to the attention of the APA. The American Psychological Association recognized that there were barriers to treatment and that there were, uh, their access to treatment wasn't as great. What are some of the barriers uh, that you see now, the barriers to care for Black Americans in particular? Okay, um, great question. So, you know, um, I can go historical, I can go current, but what I'll do is um, I, I, I really think that, you know, basic needs of, of African-Americans, you know, when you're dealing with uh, structural racism, um, you don't have access to adequate housing, education, things of that nature. Most African-American people, they're in survival mode, okay? They're just trying to survive, you know? They're trying to feed their family. They're trying to get from one day to the next day. So ultimately, you know, unfortunately, treatment gets pushed back. You know, even though the problem is there, but sometimes people are just in that survival mode. So I can see that as a barrier, poverty, you know, also to um, having access to adequate um, insurance. You know, most people, Connecticut's Husky, you know, but unfortunately, if you have a substance abuse issue, you know, your Husky only take you so far. And then, you know, maybe your Husky may pay for the first, you know, two, you know, 12 weeks, but you don't have money for aftercare. You know, sometimes Husky doesn't pick it up. You know, so that all go back to having a good job and and having adequate insurance and and and, and all of those things, you know, play into poverty. Um, I, another one I would say is housing. So in the African-American, you know, uh, community, you know, mom, dad, brother, uncle, everyone's babysitters. But if you go into uh, some type of treatment facility, who's going to get Johnny on the bus or who's going to get the little girl off the bus? So sometimes it's a strain on that family when you're removed from that family. And sometimes, again, you're in that survival mode. You know, if you go into, if you had the option to go into a treatment facility, but in your mind, you're thinking that, you know, I still have obligations in this household, you know? So, you know, th th there's so many different, you know, barriers to, to treatment, childcare, you know? So, you know, I think, again, we have to have the conversation. And even as practitioners, we have to also understand that, you know, there may be some apprehensions of people going into treatment for one reason or the other, but we can't judge them, you know? Um, another thing, too, and last thing, I was just talking to my wife about this, too. My wife's a, a licensed a clinical social worker, and she mentioned 
you know, a person's motivation, you know, their individual motivation to get treatment, to get help, you know, do we force it on people? Um, co cohesive treatment doesn't work. You know, I've seen the numbers and, you know, as a criminal justice practitioner, I've seen it where, you know, they'll do just enough to get by so that they don't have that threat of, you know, punishment or incarceration. But, you know, you really got to assess an individual's um, motivation, have that conversation with them and understand that happens over time, you know, and then, you know, there is a stigma, you know, in the black community about getting help, mental health, things of that nature, because, you know, as young men, we are taught to be strong. We are taught to not show fear, not to cry. And, you know, and, and, and we are taught not to be vulnerable. You know, so and this come this is passed down. So when we go from historical context, you know, from grandfathers to fathers to sons, you know, these these are things that are passed down. So but I think awareness, we have to make it accessible. We have to make a uh, treatment accessible. We have to educate individuals of treatment, why they're doing treatment. And also, too, with African-American people, I know what I do when I talk to a lot of my clients. You know, I teach them how to break that cycle. You don't have to always go in the cycle. You know, you may have sons or, you know, you may have children. And do you want your child to grow up in this? You know, so that's that's one of the things I try to do is just kind of help them to see that cycle and how to break that cycle. And sometimes treatment is is that they have to do the work. And one of the things that you mentioned with things about child care, and, there's, uh, and that jumps out of me because that's there's often an, uh, a misunderstanding in this field that because somebody may be actively using substances that they don't care about what happens to their children. Yes. But we know the reality of mothers is they don't want to leave their child just with anybody. If they don't have that adequate child care, yes. someone that they trust, they're, people are generally not going to do that. And so the reality differs from the narrative again in, Absolutely. in that. And it keeps people out of treatment. Yep. Interestingly, SAMHSA uh, has had funded a bunch of studies, one by uh, a colleague of ours, the late Dr. Kathleen Carroll at Yale, um, and it, what it showed is that African-Americans were twice as likely to recognize the need and enter substance use disorder treatment uh, than other ethnic groups. As a matter of fact, twice as high, 2.8% of uh, uh, African-Americans recognize the need for treatment and may enter treatment versus 1.4% of the entire percent of the total population. But they often complete fewer treatment days and have poorer outcomes. Clearly, that's a problem with the system when people are already coming in. So yep. what are some of the adjustments that you think we should make to keep these folks engaged in treatment? How do we do that? Jeff, uh, good question. And, um, you know, just as we talked about, I, I think the child care, we go back to that family structure. What would life look like if you go into this treatment facility for 90 days, 60 days or, or 30 days? You know, I think having that conversation allowing people to kind of mentally map things out, you know, childcare, how the bill is going to get paid, you know, because, you know, another apprehensive that I see with treatment is, you know, I might lose housing when I get out. So they, you know what I mean? So they don't want to go into treatment because 90 days they can't afford, you know, they can't afford to go in where they can't pay their bills, they get evicted, you know? So, and, and then in the most part, you know, and I want to put this in context of the criminal justice system, um, most people, they are on their last legs so when they're housing with the childcare. So now you're telling me I have to go into a 90 day treatment facility. I'm going to lose everything, you know, and it's almost like I'd rather go back to jail rather than do this treatment facility, you know. So sometimes that cost benefit analysis, we have to understand that, you know, 
if you don't meet people's basic needs, you don't see what's going on in their household. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we force people into these these situations and the outcomes are not as what we want. You know, we want people to go into treatment. And then the data and the research, you know, shows that when people are in long term treatment, they have better outcomes. You yeah. know, that's the goal. You want to you don't want to put somebody in a 12 month, you know, 12 week group and then they get out. You want to get them more skills and, and, and resilience that they can build so that way they can transition back in the you know, community. So I really think, you know, it goes back to that child care, poverty, uh, lack of resources, because, you know, if you go away for 30, 60, 90 days, am I going to have a home, a couch to sleep on? Is, is my girlfriend going to leave me? Because remember, people are dependent on these individuals, you know, mm -hmm. so it's a very tough decision. So I think us as practitioners, we just have to kind of see what that home structure looks like. And, and we have to also recognize that the best way to motivate individuals and to engage people in treatment is to have that therapeutic relationship. But yes. if, if I don't feel comfortable with the person that I'm assigned to, so to speak, yes. um, I'm not going to get engaged. And that kind of jumps into something that, that we as an industry, the substance abuse disorder industry, we can talk about and we can actively practice cultural competency. But reality says that someone who has experience with similar cultural factors or even simply looks like me is absolutely important in, in how we engage. So the question is, how do we increase the numbers uh, of black Americans working in the field of substance use disorder treatment and mental health treatment? Um, great question. Um, I, I think we have to increase visibility. People have to see that they are black and Hispanic, you know, uh, social workers, uh, clinicians, you know, therapists. We have to increase that, you know. So, you know, again, let's go back historically. You know, when you look at social work field, you look at the teacher, you know, teaching field, you look at police officers, predominantly either white male, white, you know, female, you know. So I think we have to increase our representation by just showing people that, yes, there are people out there that look like me. And I think as far as cultural competency, it, it, it increases the responsivity of that individual, because the other part is the majority of people that, um, you know, when you look at the criminal justice system, majority of African-American people. So you want to make sure that you have adequate uh, African-American, you know, either police officers, social workers, probation officers. You want to make sure, you know, you represent that community because that's predominantly what we're seeing. And, and, and again, it increases that engagement. You know, if someone that if, if I can sit down and converse and I understand where you're coming from and, and I've been down that road, it's easier. You know, sometimes it's easier for people to identify with people that's lived their same experience, you know. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we talk about diversity, but, you know, that's just a cliche. You know, um, it's just a number. It's checking a box. Diversity means, you know, you have to really make sure that you have ample amount of representation across the board, you know. And it's not just, you know, black and white, you know, it can be male, female. Um, all different, you know, representation, you know, so a lot of companies and organizations say, yeah, we believe in diversity, but the numbers don't lie, you know, and, and when you can show on, on your hand how many black therapists or, or the number on your hand, how many black clinicians, you know, and then one thing too, I'll add, you know, too, we need, um, unfortunately, a lot of the, you know, uh, black clinicians and therapists out there, they don't always get the big contracts, so you don't see them, you know, so sometimes they're there. And a lot of them are, you know, they're more grassroots organization or individual counseling. But a lot of times they just never rise above that level to get those big contracts, you know, and it's unfortunate. So I think these state agencies, too, you got to start looking at, um, you know, cultural competence. You know, when you're looking at outcomes, treatment outcomes, you know, people 
that are involved in, in your system. So you have to have the proper representation. One last thing too, I'll, I'll, I'll say too, I think too, to increase the visibility, you want to go to schools, um, you know, colleges, career fields, you know, again, get that message out there that there are people that look like us that uh, work in the helping profession. And I think that um, there are some things that are helping. HRSA does uh, just recently completed application for tuition reimbursement for people yes. in certain fields. So that would, uh, you know, would, would help to encourage people to go for further education. I really recently saw a cartoon that talked about diversity in my field, you know, in my yeah. chosen field, and it was a pyramid and all the diversity was at the bottom of the period. Yes. Yes. Pyramid, right. At the lower levels and people weren't being promoted yes. and, and earning yep. their way up. Yeah. Speaking of, of cultural competency, it really would be helpful if I kind of practiced some here and said, when we, we're speaking in general about black yep. Americans, it's important, um, to look beyond just the skin color. We have to take into account gender, living situation, whether it be rural, urban, suburban, origin. For example, and the most obvious to me is the cultural differences between African-Americans and West Indian-Americans in terms of in the type of community they live in, how yeah. uh, people interact with each other. It's, it's much more open society mm-hmm. for African-Americans from the South who've come North than it is for people who've come from the West Indies. So yes. it's very dangerous, I think, to try to generalize. You agree? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we have to, you know, one size don't fit all, you know, and, and we can't oftentimes, you know, uh, organizations, political structures, they just give you a glaze, one size fit all, you know, but people, especially African-American, we come from different diverse, you know, we have different um you know, culture, background, traditions, you know, so we're a very vast, you know, race and we have different traditions and cultures, you know, so, you know, how, you know, just as you just mentioned, you know, Blacks from the South are a little bit more friendly where Blacks up North, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, they, they don't talk as much and, you know, you know, and, you know, people from the North, they call us city slickers and you go South. So there's all different types of, um, you know, depending where you're at and depending on how you were raised up, but, you know, overgeneralizing is not good. Um, and you're going to miss the intended target and, and you're not going to get your outcomes, you know, and I think that um, we just have to, you know, look at person, people for, you know, as an individual and understand that they're unique in their individuality, you know. And I think that's one thing that often gets lost in cultural competency because they only require a certain amount of CEs in cultural competency every year. And we tend to generalize, I guess, to make ourselves feel better. I, don't, yeah. I mean, I don't really don't know. But it's, you can't just say, oh, because this person looks like me, they're going to be able to understand my situation. Absolutely. There are so many factors that come into play, and we, and we really have to be aware of those uh, and, and constantly learn from yeah. the people that we work with. Whatever Absolutely. we don't know, uh, they'll tell us if we're yeah. willing to listen. Yes, yes. Um, before we finish up, Anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, you know, one of the things I think the helping profession is a really good field. Um, Jeff, you can agree. It's not a lot of money in it, but it's more about making a sad, you know, having some satisfaction. And really this field, I encourage people to go into either social work, rather be, you know, clinical, you know, therapists, uh, drug and alcohol counselors. This is where you can make the impact the most, you know, you can come in this field and really 
make a significant impact in people's lives. But I would encourage people don't go in it for the money, you know, because you know, unless you're in a state government, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard. You're not going to make that hundred thousand dollar salary right out the gate. However, um, you can do meaningful impact work. And if you really want to, you know, when you look at cultural competency, again, sometimes you got to get in the fight. And that means going to those communities that no one else want to work in. But, you know, you'll have credibility because everyone else turned it away, but you went in. So I think I encourage people, great field. Um, this helped me get into my criminal justice, you know, where I'm at now, you know, just having that helping, uh, you know, nonprofit background, you know, and it's the only way to get in. But I enjoy what I do every day. I like helping people I understand that, you know, people are not perfect, but our job and our role is to kind of put them on a pathway to improve their lives and in the lives of their loved ones and families. So, you know, I encourage people to great profession, try to get certified, try to go through it. It's not easy in Connecticut. However, it's doable. You know, you just got to stick to it, you know, but um, you'll make that impact. Well, one of the things that I've, I've been in the field a long time, over 30 years, um, I, it really, it's, it's like 35 years now. Um, <laughs> I've seen a lot of changes. And one of the yeah. things that I do as I approach the, the end of my career is I like this field. I love this field, but somebody has to initiate difficult conversations yes. to make it better. Yes. I like it, but I don't like where we stand all the time. Absolutely. So I, I really want to be able to initiate those difficult conversations because the more of those difficult conversations that we have, the more we learn about each other, the more we learn about our field and the better we're going to make it for all. The bottom line is our outcome numbers in this field. We don't have a good picture of them. They haven't changed so much since 1976. So it's been 35 years. So we, it's all about getting better outcomes and having difficult yeah. conversations, I think, is a way to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. John, thank you uh, uh, again for joining us. Uh, it, it was great to talk to you. Um, I do have to say that uh, when we initiated the criminal justice credentialing here in Connecticut, uh, John was the first individual to get yes. the CCJP. He came in from Rhode Island. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. And I and um, and I saw that it was something new, it was fresh. And, and, you know, like I said, anyone that's working in the criminal justice field, it's good to have that mix of, uh, you know, substance abuse and that criminal justice background. So, you know, uh, Jeff, thank you. And, and, and thank you for your work and what you're doing. And, um, you know, I really commend you for what you're doing, especially having these uh, difficult conversations. You brought up a really good point. The outcomes are not good because we're avoiding, we're going around the topics that we need to talk about. And um, I really appreciate you just, um, you know, having those difficult conversations to make the field better and to make improvements to the field. So I definitely appreciate you for that. And the, the poor outcomes are between genders, between races, between ethnicities. It's just everybody. So it's, it's yes. when we when we make the field better, it becomes better yes. for everybody else. Yes. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank John Watts again for joining us today. And we wish you well as your dissertation process um, begins. Um, yes. Now the real work starts. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just getting, I'm just and, starting. So and I look forward to being able to, to refer to you as Dr. Watts. Thank um, you. I'll make Thank sure you that so I much. do that. And I also like to send our appreciation to Joanna Crowell of Crowell Counseling and Consulting for her financial support for making this possible. Um, we welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, as you know, and I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org if you want information. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, Amazon, 
or your favorite podcast application. We will catch you next time, everybody. 